Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's a warm afternoon in June. As I'm talking to you, it's almost 6 o'clock in the evening. And what you're about to hear is part two of my interview with Roshi Egyoku, abbot of the Zen Center of Los Angeles. The interview last week lasted a little over two hours, and unfortunately, hour two, the second half, was unusable. We had a mic malfunction. I emailed Roshi Egyoku and asked her if she'd be willing to, to re-interview the second part of our interview. She consented. So this morning I walked over and we did the interview again. And what you're about to hear is the end of last week's interview and the beginning of this week's interview. There's a little segue in there where the quality goes bad and I reintroduce Roshi Egyoku. And then we continue pretty much where we left off. So what you're about to hear is part two of a three-part interview with Roshi Egyoku, the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. And I said to Manindra Ji, you know, I don't want to go any further with this. I think it's appropriate for me to just take back my lay robes. And this was a very acceptable thing to do. Sure. So, for example, we had a man, an older Indian man who ordained with us, and he was doing it for one day. And all of his life, he had waited for this moment. It was such a profoundly moving thing to be with this man. I bet. And um, so he had done his one day and then gotten back his lay precepts and went on back to wherever he lived in India. So... After the retreat was over, I did it for the full 10 days. Then I gathered with Manindraji and Venerable Rastropology, who was actually you know, in charge of us because he was actually a monk. Um, uh, I had to kneel down, and they gave me back my lay precepts and then my lay clothing. And it was such a profoundly moving moment for me because I felt such a sorrow that I was stepping out of this form. Wow. It was really profound. And at the same time, I knew that it was right for me. Yes. You know, in all of my practice, I've had this really strong gut instinct about what I needed to do. And sure. I always followed it. So I got my back my regular clothes. And then I ended up going to, uh, after a while, to Varanasi, where I spent a couple of weeks there. It was a very profound experience being in Varanasi. And then headed off across India. By that time, our group had broken up. So there were a few of us who we formed different groups in which we were traveling in. So I ended up with a guy from Australia who had practiced for months in Thailand, I believe. And then a, a woman from New Zealand who was of Indian extraction but had never been to India born and raised in New Zealand and had come back to the motherland to figure out what that was about. <laughs> she was not a Buddhist, but somehow we had all met. Yeah. And so we decided, because we were sort of headed in the same direction, we took an overnight train to Delhi and explored Delhi, did some very interesting, you know, just Delhi itself was a profound experience. And then um, we went, made the trip 
from the Ajanta Alora Caves. I don't have my geography right, but we went to the Ajanta Alora Caves, which is a profound thing for any Buddhist. Uh, and some of the other Buddhist uh, uh, pilgrimage places around there, uh, Sanchi, the stupa at Sanchi, and then made our way down. Eventually, we ended up in Bombay, I think. And I think our group then split up. It split up somewhere. We ended up going off on our own. And maybe it was Delhi and I ended up in Bombay by myself or something like that. I don't recall now. But in any case, so my visa was ending. It was almost the end of three months. And I had the option to renew. So I was thinking about where to go and what to do. And uh, a real possibility was to go to Sri Lanka, for example. But I was sitting on my bed in Bombay, and one of the things that had happened when we left Varanasi to go across India to Delhi is um, all my luggage was stolen in an instant. Oh. Except I had my passport and my money. And, you know, I turned around in a flash, and everything was gone. And I said, oh, what a relief. I don't have to lug this stuff around. (laughs) So I had what I needed. Sure. And sitting in my bed in Bombay... And I'm saying to myself, okay, you've all of these things you've gone through, you've seen these things about yourself and your life, what is it? What do you need to do now? And with such clarity came this voice that said, go back to Maizumi Roshi and study with him. Okay. Yeah, I went to Madras, thought about going to Sri Lanka and decided not to go on and ended up flying to Singapore and then Hawaii, uh, sort of on my way back to L.A. In Hawaii, I stopped by to see my, my folks. You know, my father was quite amused at my journey and my shaved head. My mother was just mortified. I was deeply I upset by it all. But, you know, I, I never stopped to think about the impact that my journey was having on others until my little niece, who was, I don't know, able to talk, but had heard that she had had this auntie who was going around the world (laughs) doing all these things. She climbed up on my lap and looked at me with these great big eyes and said, are you the auntie who only eats brown rice? (laughs) (laughs) It was such a great moment. It was suddenly like, oh, so this is what everybody's saying about me, you know. But in any case, I came back to, to ZCLA. Okay. And not right away. Uh-huh. I, I think I ended up at another retreat, Vipassana retreat in the desert. And there I met Ruth Dennison. Oh, yes. yes. And uh, ended up after the 10 day Vipassana retreat at Ruth's place uh, in the desert. Uh-huh. Where she is in the high desert. Yes. I yeah. forgot what she calls her place now. Dharmadina? Dharma? I think it's Dharmadina. Dharmadina, something like so. that. She's a marvelous so. place there. Yeah. And I cooked. I ended up being the cook for her next retreat, um, which was a retreat for lesbians that she was doing. Jeez. Which was so interesting, I you, bet. you know? And, um, well, actually, not completely, because um, there was a guy who had just been out, let out of prison who was there. And I, I remember Ruth. <laughs> Ruth, uh, you know, she's an extraordinary person, yes, one is. of the first Western Zen women teachers, sure. I mean, as Buddhist teachers. So anyway, I remember she had, her, she had us out on her deck like at midnight under the full moon. And we were doing this exercise where, you know, they would, we would face each other in rows 
and we'd have to walk towards the person in front of us. And while we were walking towards the person, we'd go, I am them and I am me. And I was paired off with the ex-con. I'll never forget this. It was just, and we were doing this thing, you know, I am you and I am me. <laughs> it was really a hoot. <laughs> but in any case, um, I ended up at Ruth's home in Hollywood. Okay. I was helping her with things. And Maizumi Roshi heard that I was in town, so to speak. I hadn't really reconnected with him yet. Oh, because people from ZCLA had seen me at the Vipassana retreat. A few of them had gone. And um, uh, he sent uh, his attendant to pick me up at Ruth Dennison's because he knew Ruth from many years ago. And so I came back to see him, and he was curious about what I was doing and uh, just really interested, you know, in, in how my practice, where my practice was and how it developed. And I ended up... Um, returning to ZCLA and resuming my practice. And you remember what year that was? Just for... You know, if I was in India in 82, it was probably 83. Okay. Maybe maybe the latter part of 82. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> now, you, you had been on sabbatical, and you had, you know, it seems like you were... Have you by now separated from the university or are you still on sabbatical? Oh, I ended the university uh, um, after my first year at ZCLA. Okay. Uh, you know, my sabbatical year. Yes. Uh, I went back to Seattle for about a year. Okay. And Seattle at that time had a new teacher who had come, Genki Roshi. Um, um, but by that time, I decided um, that I really wanted to return to ZCLA. I see. So I'd given up my job. Okay. And uh, came back here. Yeah. Now it's late 82, early 83. You're back again at CCLA. Back again at CCLA. And are you settling in? Now you've had yeah. a Vipassana experience. You've yeah. had an Indian experience. Yeah. You've been ordained. You've given back your ordination. Right. Uh, you've been in the desert with Ruth Dennison. What a lot of experiences yeah. to integrate yeah. into your worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was just practicing. And in 83, I received... Uh, Tokudo, priest ordination from Maizumi Roshi. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. I went to him and said, I, Roshi, I'd like to ordain. Yeah. And at first he said, oh, no, I, I don't think so. You should think about this, you know. <laughs> You're a young, beautiful woman. I think you should really think about it. I, I was so surprised, you sure, know. Sure. But I said, okay. But then I ended up ordaining. We, okay. uh, he ordained me in June 16, 1983. Now, could you, for the people listening to this podcast, could you talk a little bit about the differences in ordination between what you did in India as a um, novice non-monk, and a Zen priest. Yeah. Yeah, well, in the Zen ordination, we take the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. Okay. And um, it's very interesting. In the Zen ordination, it's more like an initiation. You know, you take the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, and you're given your robes and your orioki bowls, and um, shave your head, you know, uh, in a way, that's sort of the beginning, you know, whereas in, in Christian ordination, that comes at the end of a period of training. For us, it's the beginning of your training. And, of course, it's always the beginning. And yes. you, you train and you live in that way as a priest, 
whatever that meant at the time because, you know, our forms were all so new. And there's like no end in sight. So No end for your training. No end for your training. Yeah. So you don't know if at any time the teacher will say many years down the road, okay, you're trained, go off on your own. <laughs> There's kind of no, no sense of that. But it's very different from the ordination I took beforehand because the precepts were different. Mm-hmm. For example, handling money and, you know, we didn't observe the monastic schedule. As a Zen priest, can you have a job? Yes. As a Zen priest, can you have a partner or mate? Yes. Okay. You can even have children. Okay. You can have families. Now, let me just say that this is how it's evolved here. Okay. And certainly in Japan, we're talking about the Japanese Zen tradition. In Japan, that is true for the men. Ah. The Japanese women priests um, are celibate monastics. They have chosen to maintain that form. So, you know, it's really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's interesting. Uh, you know, at one time in Japan, the government forced the priest to marry. I've heard that. You know? Yes. And so many of them had to marry, give up their kind of monastic orientation, and took on wives and had children. And then out of this evolves this whole temple system. Where they where give the, the temple to the son. Temple if, to the son. And, and it stays in the family. By government decree, the temples, you know, were the census takers. So I you see. were responsible for, you know, X number of families. And so then the priests sort of ministered in a particular way to these families. So it's very interesting to study the history of all that. Sure. So by the time people like Maizumi Roshi come, now he grows up in a temple family. Yes. He's one of seven boys. They're all ordained. His father is a temple priest. His mother comes from a temple family. And so um, this is sort of the kind of uh, environment and form that he is trained and raised in. So in coming to the West, and this form is sort of brought over. And, of course, we complicate matters in the West in the sense that men, women, and children all came to Zen centers. So not only were the men and the husbands interested in practice, the wives and the mothers wanted equal time in, in the Zendo and with the teacher and as priests. So this threw in a whole other kind of uh, uh, dimension for these teachers to deal with. And Maizumi Roshi, you know, was very profound in the way that he was able to embrace all of that. You know, he knew it was like really in Japan you would never ordain a mother with three kids, for example. But what he responded to was our passion for the Dharma. Yes. You know, we were real true seekers and, and we just wanted this Dharma so badly. And that's what he responded to. So he said, okay, you know, I, I'll ordain them, train as best I can. Now, the training part is a big question because what are the forms that we use? And so a lot of the Japanese forms were brought over, and it was also new for all of us. You know, we were just doing this thing. But at some point, it started to feel not so comfortable. Like, why are we doing this? You know, those kinds of questions start to arise. So in 1983, I, I may be getting my dates mixed up, but I believe it was in 1983. In the early 80s, the Zen centers around the country started to... Uh, collapse with various kinds of scandals. I see. So 
in 83, ZCLA had its big scandal. I see. And it was around uh, Maizumi Roshi's alcoholism and affairs with a couple of students. I see. So I ordained in June of 83. So I believe it was like in July of 83, <laughs> like a month later, <laughs> Maizumi Roshi called all of us into his office for a meeting. It was a big office. You know, this was all of the staff, the day staff. And he told us that um, um, he had been involved with a couple of his students, and uh, or one in particular that caused a lot of upheaval, because uh, it was a senior female student of his, and that um, there had been a lot of complaints and criticism of his drinking. And, um, you know, it was so interesting. See, I was still very new to the whole Could saga. I, yeah. just, uh, for me, this has always been a fascinating uh, mm-hmm. thing because the five precepts, the fifth precept is not to consume intoxicants. Yeah. A lot of Westerners take that and say not to consume intoxicants to the point of intoxication and eventually not to consume any at all. And yet in, in the culture of Japan... It's from what I've read in my limited understanding. It seems that there's been a tradition of of drinking uh, for many years, yeah. if not since the beginning. Yeah. It's very, you know, you're raising really an important point, and okay. we're not going to be able to talk about it enough. But let me just say this, because this is so key. In, in the way that the precepts are studied in my tradition, mm-hmm. they're, they're studied from many different perspectives. But the three most important ones for us to talk about are. The, the very uh, literal perspective, which is do not drink, means do not drink, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and then it's studied from a, a more a broader relational perspective where, where we're looking at time, place, person, amount. So there may be a time when drinking is appropriate. There may be a time when stealing is appropriate. There may be a time when lying is appropriate. There may even be a time when killing is appropriate. So here we're, we're looking at the precepts uh, in kind of a relational way. I call it the gray area. The, the first is sort of black and white. It's a do or a don't. But now we have the gray areas of life where it's not so simple to figure out what I'm going to do because it's contextual. It's taking place in a, in a context. Um, and so... Drinking here becomes diluting the mind. And it's not just limited to alcohol, but we could talk about drugs, television, concepts, my opinions and ideas, all these beliefs that I use to cloud the mind. So it takes on a a much broader kind of thing and becomes a little bit more difficult to, to grapple with. And then the third, of course, comes from what we call the the Buddha view or the emptiness view, where, you know, fundamentally there is no one to break a precept. There's no precept. And there's no one who can be stolen from or harmed. Now, this is a tricky area. Unless we have some profound insight, we're not going to understand that area. So any one of these three perspectives um, has a real shadow side. So from the one where, oh, well, everything is empty, we say, well, it doesn't matter what I do, and we become somewhat psychopathic. From, yeah, the, gray, yeah. from the gray area, 
well, there's all these options. What should I do? We end up not doing anything. We become like totally wishy-washy, sort of paralyzed, you know, in this gray area of things. And then from the black and white area, we can become very rigid from one view, so rigid, you know, that we're just, nobody wants to associate with us because we won't allow any other view. So we look at it as all these, all these perspectives, you know, are present at any one time. And our task, you know, as practitioners is to really recognize that. And given that we can stand with all of these perspectives, our action then becomes clear. But we're not denying any one of these. So this is a long way of saying from from this perspective. Uh, no, it's wonderful. Yeah, thank from, you. From this perspective, um, there there is there in Japanese Buddhism. So already you have the marriage, you know. So the celibacy is is gone uh, uh, from from that. And then uh, the the culture does have a lot of drinking, you know. So many of the priests, not all. Uh, I know those who don't drink, who are, sure. who are not married, who don't eat meat, you, sure. you know. Sure. But but these things uh, uh, are somewhat, shall I say, acceptable. Let's put that in quotes. They they happen, and they're not frowned upon necessarily uh, in that way. Um, although many of us would not consider some of the excesses as appropriate at, at all. all. You know, so it's more yeah. that kind of way of looking. As as I hear that explanation, it's wonderful. I've, I've never heard it put that way. Uh, the first one seems to be the law. The second one seems to be the relative context we find ourselves in, and the third way is the ultimate context. Yeah. And and all three are occurring at exactly the same time. Yeah. <laughs> all three are, and you know, any any. I think one of the really important things for us as Westerners to realize, because you know, our culture. Moral underpinnings, you know, are just flopping all over. Um, is that any position you take has a shadow side, and we really need to be able to bring the shadow side into our consciousness. Otherwise, you know, we will create so much suffering for ourselves. I mean, for others, yes, but for ourselves primarily, because we think I can't be this, I can't be that. I've only got to do this. I've only got to do that. And many practitioners are caught, you know, in those kind of shadow wars, yep. and it's so painful. So um, when we're caught in those places, we know that, you know, we need to take a really bigger and wider look at, at what these precepts really are meant to be in our, in our lives. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I always found it's it's. Um like inviting in the uncle that you don't like to see. <laughs> and, and then you have to create a relationship with the uncle. Yeah. And once the relationship is created, there's a sense of acceptance yeah. of that's just part of my family. Right. That's just who I am. Yeah. And the stuff comes up and you note it, observe it, and then you go on to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But if we deny it and try to suppress it, it does yeah. come up in other ways. It really does come up. And I, and for me, it would be note and... Uh, Accept and but and experience. Yes. Allow myself to really experience. You know, if that urge to kill arises, not repressing it. I'm not going to act it out, but I'm not going to deny it's there either. You're going to watch it. You're going to watch it arise. And, and, and I'm going to really experience it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to let my my body, yeah. this very body, really experience what that is. Otherwise, it just goes into shadow. And yeah. and and I can do this because I have sat. 
and and I have a strong container sure. for for these intense feelings to be there. Uh-huh. I think this is very very important. And you don't have to act on them. Don't have to act. There's always on them. a choice. I think that's an important aspect too. Yeah. We always yeah. have the choice to kill the mosquito yeah. or not kill the mosquito. Yep. And killing is still there. Yep. But it's yeah. Yeah. Now to take you back, here you are in this uh, meeting, and and he's confiding, he's he's sharing with you what what he's facing. How, how did you feel about that? It was very fascinating for me. I was sitting there, you know, I was not in the inner circle of the Zen Center. The Zen Center was very big, and there were a lot of people around him who had been around him much longer than I had, and. You know, I was not, I was just sitting, you know, I was just sitting night and day. I was one of these uh, Zen fanatics and whatever else anybody was doing, I didn't care. It was fine with me, you know. (laughs) And And what we needed to do, even though you're listening to the podcast and only a moment has passed, we had technical difficulties last week with the second half of the interview. So Roshi Egyoku kindly consented to re-interview the second half and now, a week later, I am sitting in the same room at the Zen Center of Los Angeles with Roshi Akioku. It's a bit overcast and muggy today. And we're going to take up where we left off. Roshi Akioku, as we were talking last time, just before the technical difficulty happened, you were explaining that uh, Maizumi Roshi had just called a meeting of all the senior students. And you found yourself in the room, and um, I'm going to ask you again, how was that experience? What did you think about that? How did you feel when you heard your teacher talking? Well, when I heard him talking, I decided I would uh, go to the beach. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Because water is really kind of a a power, power place for me. So after the meeting was over, and I think I had explained that, uh, you know, it was all news to me because I wasn't part of the inner world of of the Zen Center at that point. So I remember getting on a bus going to, from Wilshire Boulevard all the way to Santa Monica Beach. Mm -hmm. And um, I had just ordained, you know, it had been like a month and a half since my ordination as a Zen priest. So I was with my shaved head and my Japanese monk's clothing. <laughs> and I remember sitting on Santa Monica Beach just looking at the Pacific Ocean. And I found myself, you know, raising my right arm and just pointing to the ocean, you know, back and forth, just pointing to the ocean. And all of a sudden, my arm moved and my finger point right to me. Mm. And at that moment, I thought, you know, this is what you need to do, is go back and really pay attention to what you need to do uh, in terms of what's happening, mm-hmm. and not be focused on whose fault it is, or they should have done this, or he shouldn't have done that. And so that sort of became a guiding thing for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I returned to the center, and uh, the center very quickly uh, was in great upheaval. I was going to ask you about that. What was now the the inner circle heard the news first, and and so what was the general feeling of the center? Now you had people living here and practicing here. We had many people living there at the yeah. time. We had a staff of almost eighty people. Wow, it's over a hundred people, you know, living here. We owned almost the entire city block. Yeah, in those days, 
And uh, Maizumi Roshi agreed to go to an al- alcoholic treatment center in San Diego. Okay. And some of his senior students had gone to him and said this would really be helpful for you and for the Sangha, for the members. And he was willing to do whatever it took to you know, address the problems that had occurred and if it would serve the Sangha and the membership, uh, he was willing to do that. So he went off to San Diego. I don't know how much time lapsed between the meeting and his trip to San Diego, probably a few months if even that. Mm-hmm. And um, the Sangha was in great turmoil. Mm-hmm. So while he was in the treatment program, uh, one of the counselors mm. from that program would come to ZCLA and hold these Sangha-wide meetings where, you know, they would lead us in discussions and, you know, emoting of all (laughs) repressed emotions and all of that stuff. And one of the things we began to learn is that many people had come from families where alcoholism was an issue. Mm -hmm. You know, not all, but a huge percentage. Mm -hmm. And so that was really an education for us. So we began to learn about alcoholism. And uh, some of us went to these meetings, uh, not the AA meetings, but the family meetings. Is it Al-Anon? Or Al-Anon, something? Something right. Like and I went to a few of those. That was quite, a, quite an eye-opener. It was very interesting. Uh-huh. So but we began to learn about all these things, you, you know. And in the meantime, uh, many people were so disillusioned. I bet. With what had happened, felt very betrayed. You know, Maizumi Roshi was no longer on their pedestal. Which, mm-hmm. of course, is always a good thing when you fall off somebody's pedestal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, you know, the projection was that he was to be, you know, the perfect Zen religious spiritual master. Yes. And so we didn't have to own a lot of our own things because it was all projected onto him. But in any case, people began to leave the Zen Center. At that point, who, who was running the Zen Center when he was in San Diego? At that point, Do you remember? yes, two of his senior students were running okay. the center at the time. Okay. And they were in a great deal of turmoil themselves mm. uh, because one of them had been involved with Maizumi Roshi and the other one had had his own series of involvements with women. And um, so all of that, of course, came, came out and was being dealt with by themselves and, and the Sangha. And... Um, and at one point, um, you know, they decided uh, that the Zen Center should be sold. You know, in those days, we were always talking about should ZCLA remain in the neighborhood that it is. Mm-hmm. Now, during those days, the neighborhood was really quite scary. And now, when you say those days, can you give me a time frame? Yeah, on this is 1983. Okay. The mid 80s. Okay. You know, yes. I don't know if you were living here at the time, Kusala. I was practicing, but not living. Yeah, and yeah. so it was a lot of gang activity. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of gunfire all the time. Drugs around the neighborhood. A lot of drugs. Yeah. It was a scary place. So there was always this conversation should it be moved, sold and moved, you know? And Maizumi Roshi would sometimes humor people about this, and he had one of his senior students out looking for places and was very interested in something, but when push came to shove, Roshi would say, no, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> this is the place, yeah. you, you know? Yeah. And uh, But in those days, it was like, let's move to a, quote, better, unquote, neighborhood, yeah. you, you know, meaning the west side the west or side. something like that. Exactly. 
But uh, so they decided to put the Zen Center up for sale. And anyway, all of that fall through, you know, that was just another thing to show what a mess we were in. But these two senior students did, uh, within a matter of months, I think within the first year perhaps, I don't remember the timeline so accurately, um, moved on. Okay, they, they left the center? They left the center okay. and they founded their own centers. Mm. One of them just lived quietly for a while just to take care of her own healing and like we all had to do, you know, sure. figure out what have I, what have I been involved in? What am I doing? Yeah. You, you know, um, and then I think the other one already might have been going out and having centers, so okay. uh, having uh, sitting groups. So they both left the center, and Maizumi Roshi returned then to ZCLA uh, when his treatment period was over. You know, I don't know if it was 30 days or maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But he returned to the center, and of course it was in great disarray and upheaval. Um, and how did he seem when he got back? Well, he, had, had he changed in any marked way that you could tell? Well, you know, I, I was so new in a way to all of this kind of process okay. that uh, I think subdued, we could say. Mm-hmm. Well, like, and, like and, and of humble, course, humility? Yes, and also... You know, I think also just uh, astounded, perhaps, that mm. all of this upheaval had created and the impact, yeah. you know, just the impact on all of these people. And um, But Maizumi Roshi came back and really took his seat here. And he stayed here. And every morning, he would go to the meditation hall. He'd go to the zendo where the rest of us went to sit. And he would take his seat and maybe we would sit for 15 minutes or so, and then he would open it up for discussion. And he would just say to all of us that were there, okay, say what you have to say. That's taking a big chance, isn't it? Yeah. And he did this over many, many months. And people, of course, you know, would say what they had to say. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of it is, you know, the kind of thing you, whoa, it's called the big dump, right? And the big blame and all of that stuff came out of people. And he just sat there and took it. He never, ever said, you you know, made excuses for his behavior at, at any time. And I think I may have recounted in our first interview (laughs) that before Maizumi Roshi died, so this would have been like maybe 12 years later. Okay. Um, I was working as his assistant then. Uh-huh. And he and I were in his office, and he had received a letter from a student who had left in 1983 in the midst of this upheaval. And he asked me to read it to him, because Maizumi Roshi was not really fond of reading English, although his, you know, he could speak English, of course. So I read this letter, and it was from a man who had left all those years ago, and it was a letter of apology for his conduct, for this man's conduct during that time. And after I read it, I said to Roshi, I said, well, you know, this is really a beautiful letter. And we looked for a return address, but it had been smeared. The letter had come from Europe. So we were not able to reply, and then we just went on with our work. And about a half hour later, Maizumi Roshi paused, and he said to me, you know about that letter? And I said, yeah. And he said, "Um, I did what I did, and the reasons do not matter. He said, what I want you to understand 
is that I hurt a lot of people and I recognize that. You know, I have a lot of remorse about that. And I've spent all these past years just trying to make up for it and continuing the work of the Dharma. And I said to him, you know, Roshi, I don't know if I'm ever in the midst of something like that where I caused a lot of hurt to other people that I could actually say that the reasons don't matter. I think I would want to at least offer a few reasons and excuses (laughs) for my behavior. And I was so deeply moved by that. And I thought, you know, this is a great lesson for me to carry forward, to not make excuses for my behavior, although there may be reasons it happened, but to not go into into justifying any kind of behavior on my on my part. So that's been uh, one of the teachings I got from from this whole, you know, kind of unfor- really unfortunate thing that we all went through. But in any case... Um, now to get back to you, you the, these two people now are in charge. Mizumi Roshi comes back, and you're still practicing, I'm assuming. Are you yes. still on staff? Are you yes. still on staff? Okay. Yes. And, and, and what, what are you doing now? Are you, are you just ignoring it, or are you staying, trying not to pay too much attention to it because there's so much work to do here? You've lost people? What is, what is your life like? Well, I was on staff, as you say, and uh-huh. very quickly, the entire staff of 80 dwindled to almost none. Oh. And almost overnight, people left the Zen Center. We had an exodus of people just leaving, you know? Yeah. Some with their belongings, some just dumped it on the center. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that too. <laughs> you, know, you know how that We're is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I had decided that I would stay for a period of time. I didn't have a time limit. But what became clear to me in in being part of all of the meetings and the discussions and listening to the people who were really blown away by it all, that I felt I had something to learn here Mm. and that I had a lot to learn from this man, from Maizumi Roshi, and that I was going to hang in there for a while. So I did. Okay. And this is not to say that the people who left were wrong because certainly, you know, we do what we need to do. And I felt for me, largely because I was not so wrapped up in the inner workings of the center, I was not quite as affected as other people were in such a visceral way. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed. But you were affected in the sense that now you had to take over a lot of this extra work, didn't you? Well, and I had just left. been ordained. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. I was just ordained doing yeah. my little my little Zen monk thing. <laughs> 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 yeah, so there was that. It was like, wow, yeah. you know, what happens now? Yeah. And yes, so we suddenly had vacancies. Mm-hmm. You know, we owned a lot of property then. A big part of our income, of course, was from our uh, training fees, what we would call rentals, like our monastic housing fees. And overnight, we had like vacant apartment buildings. So we decided, and I was in charge of the housing. (laughs) So you said, how am I going to fill these rooms? How are we going to fill the rooms? 
we put an ad in the LA Times, and we just became landlords overnight. So they didn't have to practice that? They didn't have to practice at that point, okay. no. I mean, you know, we were in no condition for any of that to happen. Okay. And we just rented to, you know, all kinds of people. And, I mean, that was a whole episode in itself, being a, a landlady with yeah. <laughs> yeah. all kinds of people looking for a place to live in this neighborhood. So it's, you can exactly. imagine what that was like. And... Um, uh, but that's what we did. So okay. those of us who were left, you know, just started to attend to this. And, um, you know, Maizumi Roshi just went through all the things he had to go through. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also had to attend to his family. He had a wife mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, I think at the time they may have had their third child, was just about to be born, mm. I, I believe. So the children were small. Uh, the Zen Center had gone to pot. The neighborhood was going to pot. <laughs> you know, so I think the family made a move away from the neighborhood okay. because that was a little too scary yeah. uh, for the family. And so there was a small group of us left who, you know, did our best to continue uh, and, and live in the midst of this situation. Sure. So after a year and a half of this, so it would have been mid-1985, okay. things had pretty much settled down. Uh -huh. And uh, we had gone through you know, all of the, the legalities of things, and we had decided in this year and a half to sell half of our city block. Okay. And so financially, that money enabled us to, to live. Okay. So, so that part was attended to. And then because we had consolidated our physical properties, we had seven buildings left, which was much more manageable mm -hmm. uh, for us at that time. And when things had settled down, I thought, you know, now I need to step back and look at me mm. and what I've been through and where am I in this whole thing because, you know, I had just ordained. Sure. <laughs> Sure, and then all that extra responsibility. And everything was poof, was yeah, gone. Yeah. It was just gone. Yeah. The training program was gone. Everything was gone. And so I went to Maizumi Roshi and, and said that I thought this was a time for me to step back. And, of course, he you know, agreed and was always supportive. And uh, I went uh, and got an apartment and a job in Los Angeles. And okay. I lived not too far from the center, but I didn't come here to okay. practice. I decided I would just... You know, get a life. Uh huh. And what kind of job did you get? I worked. Uh, I worked temporary jobs in the okay. beginning okay. because I was not ready to settle into anything and go down the whole, you know, career path. Career path and work path, and because I knew that was not what I was really into. So I, I was doing temp jobs, and it was very funny. I was working for the CEO of, of a company in Culver City. And one of my jobs was to help him interview for a new uh, ex executive assistant. <laughs> and so I was having a ball, you know, getting all these, getting all these people coming in and helping him interview sure. and all of that. It was really fun. Yeah. And in the middle of the whole process, he called me in and he said, um, look, they're all wonderful people. But he said, I want you to take the job. Wow. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I don't, you know, I don't want a, a permanent, so-called permanent job. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I know you don't, he says, but I've gotten used to you. <laughs> I'd like <laughs> you to take it, you know. 
think about it. And and he said, you know, you just you tell me what kind of salary you want. And you know, nobody's ever said that to me in my whole life. And I I was like flummoxed. I didn't know what to do. You know? Yeah. I just didn't know what to do. But anyway, I decided after a while, okay, you know, I'll I'll work for him. So I ended up working there. Uh for about a year and a half until he got fired. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess nothing's forever. Nothing's forever, you yeah. know. Yeah. But in any case, um, uh, during that year, I had put my robes away. I hung it in my closet uh-huh. and put my zafu away. And I said, you know, I'm just giving myself space. Hmm. And I'm not going to regulate my practice in that way. And I ended up in that year... Um, Attending a mystery school in in Los Angeles. Now, when you say mystery school, yeah. what does that mean? It was uh, one Is of these schools where you did a lot of energy type work. Is it sort of like alternative spirituality or New Age spirituality well, or mysticism or shamanism? Maybe or? a combination of mysticism and shamanism. Okay. You know, it was people who I can't I can't remember the term. It slips my mind. Who could like lay their hands on people and do energy work to heal? Oh yeah. yeah. Is that like Reiki, Reiki? No, no. Huh? It's much more than that. And much the woman more, okay. who founded it was actually a, uh, a remarkable healer. Okay. You know, she had remarkable healing gifts. So she had founded a school, and I, I don't know how I found out about it, but I started attending classes there, and uh, she taught a lot about ritual and things like that, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a great time. It was very different from Zen, of course. I bet. But I at bet. the same time, it spoke to a part of me yeah. that um, uh, was there, and needed expression, so I enjoyed it a great deal. No contact with the Zen Center, maybe with a few of my friends who were at the center I may have seen once once in a while. Okay. And um, I just went on in this way, and it's very interesting, but a year and a half went by, and one day I said, I'm ready to sit again. So I went to my closet, pulled out my zafu, pulled out my robes, and there I was doing zazen in my apartment. And can you, was there, can you, do you know why that shift occurred? Is, did it just one day you went to your closet and it made sense? But there wasn't a specific thing that happened that, okay. Not that I can recall. Okay. You know, in the mystery school, uh, I was doing a lot of uh, internal processing. Uh-huh. And one of the things that um, was really up for me was the Holocaust, mm. World War II Holocaust. Now, why had did you know anybody who was involved with no. that? No. Okay. I knew nobody. My family has no Holocaust history, although yeah. it has a Hiroshima history. Yeah. No Holocaust history, but somehow uh, I was very much involved in my angst about it. And learning about it, and it was something very real to me, yeah. you know, to the point where I felt I, I could possibly have had a past life Ooh. in that Holocaust, you, you, you yeah, know. Sure. And so, and as 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 someone who was in in the camps, and so it was a very visceral thing. And you know, I I know a lot of people like this who who are like me who had no historical connection or family or friend connection. But it's like 
a real presence in our lives, and that was the truth for me. And I was doing a lot, a lot of this was coming up in the mystery school work I was doing. And um, I remember, of course, as a metaphor, you, you know, I was sort of in my own internal camp, we, we, we could say, and dealing with these kind of dark shadow sides of my life. And one night I had a dream. I had a dream, and the dream was that I was an inmate in the camp. And someone came to tell us that a number of us were going to be freed. We were going to be let out. And I was one of them. And But in order for us to get out, we had to have our paperwork in order. So we were asked to fill out all our paperwork, which we did. And then one by one, you know, we got to like the gate and all our paperwork was being checked, and people were being released, and then it came to me. And they're checking all my paperwork, and there was a number that was missing. And so they asked me, well, you forgot this number. And I had this moment where I said, oh, I don't remember it. I don't remember my number. And someone saw this and came over to me and handed me a pen. And they said to me, this is a magic pen. And when you start using it, what you need will be there. And I took the pen and there the number appeared and I was excused. So that was a very important you know, it's interesting. I have never talked about this dream, but somehow sitting here with you is just present for me. It was very important in my inner growth. And I think with that release came a certain integration, you know, in a very deep level. So I, um, very shortly after that, I believe, somehow I was drawn to sitting again. Now, the other thing that happened... <laughs> <laughs> around these rituals I was doing. You know, mind you, if you had entered my apartment in those years, I mean, I had altars everywhere. I was experimenting with all kinds of ritual. And um, one of the rituals I did was around Maizumi Roshi. So I was doing a ritual around resolving relationships or kind of integrating relationships in a, in a deeper way. And so I had learned a ritual and sort of improvised on it, um, you know, where you, you sit privately at your altar and you do the appropriate preparations and, and set up. And in a part of the ritual, uh, you sort of envision yourself and then you envision the other person and you, you envision what connects you. And um, I had done this with a number of people and then I decided, oh, well, as long as I'm doing this, I'll envision Maizumi Roshi. And so I envisioned him and envisioned what connected us. And it was so incredible because what connected us was a golden thread mm. that could not be cut. Mm. And I said, wow, that, that is incredible. And I started laughing, you, you know. But that was a tremendous insight for me that 
this connection was there and it was powerful and needed to be honored, however it was going to be played out. So I think it was really rather soon after that that I went back to him, paid him a visit, not to return. I just said, pay him a visit, say hello, you, you know. And um, one thing led to another. There was a, an apartment that shortly became vacant. And uh, I moved in, and that was my return. So that would have been maybe in 1985. Okay. Yeah. So you, you had left for about a year and a half done some work, uh, experienced some other ways of practicing, and now you're back. And, and how had it changed since you'd been away? Did you notice any changes? Well, yes. Okay. It was a, a much more somber place. Uh-huh. Fewer people. Not a lot of people actually practicing with Maizumi Roshi. But there were some new people. He had a small group of, uh, I think it was mostly young men, say mid-30s, something like that, who had come and had ordained with him. And at the time, Maizumi Roshi was asking people to be celibate. Really? Yes, he had gone into this direction, you, uh-huh. you, you know? Yeah. And I know for him, you know, from my 17 years with Maizumi Roshi, this whole question about celibacy... Uh, I don't know if I talked about this earlier. Not at all. No. This whole question about celibacy was, I would say, was a deep personal koan for him. Okay. Because there was a part of Maizumi Roshi that really desired the monastic life. To be celibate without family responsibilities, to give, you know, 108% to the Dharma, which he did anyway, and and not have anything pull him, not have his energy pulled in any other direction. And so after all he had been through, he came down to, I'm asking people to be celibate who practice around me. Is there a tradition in Japanese Zen of celibacy? Well, surely. Do they have the monks as well as there, the There priests? are monks who are. Okay. Y- you know, but it's not, it's more, I think, an individual choice. The individual choice. It's okay. not widespread. Okay. Um, but I believe there are a few who, who live that way. Okay. You, you know? Yeah. But as you well know in our culture, yeah. the, it's very difficult to sustain that kind of life. And certainly if you're going to live in the midst of a community of people yeah. who are not really honoring that yep. and may even think you're weird for doing that, yeah, it's a do. very difficult environment, right, yeah. to, to continue that over a period of time. But Maizumi but Roshi was married now at this point. That's right. But he was asking his monks to do that. But now having said that, uh, can you see why it would be beneficial for practice yourself? It, oh, absolutely, and, absolutely, and okay. I've had long periods of my life where I was doing a celibate practice, Sure, sure. and um, for me it was very important, because okay. I had issues with my own sexuality that I needed to attend to, yeah. you, you know, yeah. so after, you know, uh, one relationship in particular, I decided, hey, lady, <laughs> You're a little screwed up here, if you'll pardon my use of that word. Exactly. No, and, I, I, and you need to step back and, yeah. and really understand what this whole thing was about for you. Yeah. It's like a you know, time to grow in a different way. However, 
And I was celibate at the so, time I returned to ZCLA. In a way, now, for, pe for people listening to this who are in <laughs> Oklahoma or Kansas right. or Hawaii. Hi, Oklahoma and Kansas. You know, uh, <laughs> you don't see anything wrong with having a period of your life uh, devoted to celibacy as a personal exploration. Absolutely of not. Of what it means to be you and your sexuality as well. It, it doesn't necessarily make you a better Buddhist perhaps, because there are really good Buddhists who have families and kids and grandkids, and there are really good Buddhists who don't have any of that. So it so it's do, doesn't make you a better Buddhist, but perhaps it gives a person a time out to, for yeah. personal investigation? Yeah. Yes, you know, this is a really an interesting point, isn't it? I think it's absolutely essential to have these times in your life when you choose it to be. Not that it just happens to turn out that way. But you very consciously say, mm. you know, I am going to understand my own sexuality and I'm carving out this period of time, whatever the period is, whether it be six months, a year, maybe a couple of years, <laughs> where I'm really going to go into this and understand my dynamic around it. Okay. And um, does it make you a better Buddhist? You know, it's an interesting way, I think, that you put it. You know, part of being a, a quote, better, unquote, Buddhist is... And part of Buddhist path, as we both know, is that we must come to a deep understanding of who we are. Yeah. You know, and the two can't be separated. Mm -hmm. And you know what I see is for a lot of us, you know, we're very confused mm -hmm. about our sexuality. Mm -hmm. We're terribly confused about it. It doesn't help that we live in a culture that it's confused about is it too. very confused <laughs> about the whole thing. And then we've <sighs> got. Uh, where, you know, we have, um, uh, what do you call mixed it? Mixed signals. We have mixed signals, and we're yeah. puritanical. Yes, puritanical on we one side. We live in such a puritanical culture. And yet the advertising, the marketing aspect, it's everything goes, and that's how you have fun. Yeah. So you have this, you know, tension, yes. this dichotomy yes. between the roots of America and what our cultures become. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, we all have a lot of learning to do. And, like, how do you learn? You know, there's not even places to, like, discuss it. No. You, you, you know, and, and we need to learn. So uh, that was an important thing for me. Now, however, when, Maizumi, when I came back to practice and Maizumi Roshi was <laughs> doing this thing, you know, he asked me, he told me that this is what he was asking of people. And... He was asking me now to take this on. Okay. And, of course, I already had made that commitment for myself yeah. for, I don't know, however long, but, you know, because I was learning a lot about myself in that way. And um, I listened to his request, and I just t thought about it, you know, and I said, you know, Roshi, I said, you know, I'm living, I'm actually living that way now, but I will not commit to it in the way you're asking me to. And I said, for this reason, I said, you yourself are not living this way. You know, you have a wife and children. And I said, I don't know in the future, you know, what that could be for me. You, you know, I said, I don't have any plans to marry and have children. And I said, but at the same time, this doesn't feel right to, to make a commitment to you right now about this. But but it is how I'm living. <laughs> so from that point of view, there's no conflict, you, you sure, know. <laughs> sure, sure. And you know, and so he he accepted he accepted yeah. that. Yeah, wonderful. And I think you were being realistic as well, because who knows what the future holds for us? Yeah.
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, as you know, there's this wonderful tradition in Southeast Asia where people take on this kind of, you know, monastic style of practice uh-huh. for a while. A designated period of time. Yeah, sure. and, and the young men expe- are expected to do that in the monastery. That's right. You know, yeah. and for a year or two and, and make merit for their family. I mean, I wasn't creating merit yeah. for my family, but, but that's the tradition. And then yeah. they go pick up their lay life, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. And they looked so, at it as a better catch because they've had discipline themselves yeah. in that way. Yeah. So yeah. in those years, you know, from 85 to 90, I would say, yeah. you know, ZCLA was in a very kind of tender time, I would say. And Maizumi Roshi himself was, you, you know, in a very tender space. Okay. And I would say he was probably in a depression. Mm. Uh, you know, he had to deal with his grief and all the loss sure. uh, around him, uh, created by his own involvement, his own actions. And so there were very few people who were here, but there were people who were coming and practicing who weren't terribly interested in what had happened. And yet we were really a wounded lot yeah. and a wounded place. I, during those times, I recall, there would be very few of us in the Zendo listening to his Taisho, mm-hmm. you know, his, his talk. And could you explain what Taisho means? Yeah. Taisho okay. has a very unique meaning. It's uh, unlike a, a standard Dharma talk where okay. we might talk about the Dharma, but a Taisho is a, a Zen master putting out uh, the, the Dharma in a way that needs no explanation. It's simply being expounded. And it's like sparks fly, you you know. And and you take it in with your whole body. And and maybe when you leave the Teisho, you have no idea what was said. But in a very deep way, something has been shifted. Mm. (laughs) You know, so a Teisho is like that. It is just putting, putting it out there and maybe this... Maybe people get it, maybe they don't. Okay. You know, so you're sort of speaking to that deepest part of them that already knows mm. what it is. Yeah. And so that's what it is. Wonderful. But in any case, there were very few of us there. Mm. And during those days, I personally feel he gave some of his best yeah. talks. Were you and able to really, record those? Yes, they were those? all recorded. Wonderful. And it, when it came time to, to do his book yeah. after he had died... Um, these are the talks I went back to. It's ah. all during this time period, ah. you know. Okay. But it was it was a difficult time. Now, during this period of time, what was Roshi Bernie Glassman doing, and how had your relationship with him changed, or grown, or matured? Roshi Glassman continued his work in uh, Yonkers, New York, okay. uh, founding the Grayson Foundation. He and Maizumi Roshi were very very close. And he, he said to me once, we were closer than lovers. Mm. You know, they spoke a lot on the phone. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. When the center blew up in 83, of course, Roshi Glassman was already in New York. And he came. He flew back, I remember, to just see us and to see Roshi. And, you know, it was in such upheaval. And, and all people's angers were all being focused on Maizumi Roshi. And I remember Roshi Glassman standing in our community house and he said, how could you be doing this to Maizumi Roshi? Something like that. 
And I remember people say, what do you mean? We're not doing it to him. He's done it. And I didn't know what to make of that question. Uh, but it sort of stayed with me as a koan. And you know, sitting here today, I understand what he meant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really difficult, and I think it takes some maturity and practice to stand by a teacher or someone who's going through something like this yeah. and to be clear enough about your own issues and your own projections to be able to do that, that's an incredible thing. Well, you know, very few people at the time were able to do that. Yeah. But it's a powerful question, I think, mm-hmm. to put in. You know, he was not saying it from a point of blame, but like, how could, it, what are we doing here? Because yeah. he never left Maizumi Roshi's side ever. Mm-hmm. So during that time, uh, I didn't have a lot of contact with Roshi Glassman. Okay. I mean, he would come to ZSLA from time to time. Uh, I remember he would come and he would be invited to give you know, commencement speeches at Claremont or at conferences in L.A. And he would come out. And so th- my contact was limited to those times. But uh, uh, I always enjoyed seeing him. You know, I always had a, a, a connection with him, mm. I, I felt, that was... That was special, yeah. but I didn't expect it to go anywhere. Sure. I mean, I wasn't looking for it to go anywhere, yeah, you right. know, because I had decided when I returned in 85 that for the next five years, I was not going to go anywhere. Okay. That I was going to stay at ZCLA. I was going to put my all my energy into practicing with Maizumi Roshi, wherever that was going to go. Because you remember, I'd been ordained for like a month and a half when the center sure. blew up. Right. And I hadn't had a chance to actually... Train yet. <laughs> train. Yeah. So I said, okay, you're going to train now. In the midst of all of this, this is the perfect circumstance for yeah. you. This is where you need to be. And you're not going to start thinking you ought to be elsewhere. But you're going to be right here. And this is the perfect life for you now. And so I, I took on that attitude. And it became that. You know, it was interesting. It became that. You know, and all the people around me, I just made it a point to get to know them and to to make my life here. Wonderful. You, you know, and, sure. and that's what I did. Now we come to 1990, and it sounds like another turning point for you in your journey. Did you, because you've been here for five years. <laughs> right. And did you leave again? Uh, that would have been, yeah, I guess that would have been 1990. No, I re-upped for another five. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm one of these people, I can't think like long, long term, yeah. although now I can. I can think lifetimes ahead. <laughs> okay. So it's like installments, you know? Right. Okay. But in a practical way, that's right. I sort of did it in installments. Okay. Uh, that's very, very true. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that, that happened to me in 1988, if I can backtrack a little Please, bit, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was time for me to be the, the shuso or the head monk. Okay. So I told Maizumi Roshi I wanted to do that in the mountains, in our mountain center in Idlewild. You wanted to be the head monk in the Idlewild center? Yes, in the Idlewild center. And at at that time we were alternating between city center and mountains. But after all of the upheaval, I believe all of the 90-day intensives were just held in the mountains. Okay. Because we didn't have the resources to to do both. So really almost all your practice has been in the city. Yes. Okay. All of it has been in the city. In the city, okay. And at that time, I was working for a management consulting firm. Okay. So I applied for a leave. And um, 
<coughs> excuse me, applied for a leave for, I believe, four months because I knew I'd need a month after that intensive to get back on my feet, so to speak. Okay. And I was granted the leave. Imagine that. Yeah. And went up, moved up to our mountain center, in a, moved into a small hut, and I took on this 90 days of training in the mountain temple. Did you find it difficult after being in the city with millions of people <laughs> at a half a block center to move into a little cottage in the mountains? It was different. Yeah. Y you know, and I'm not a mountain type of person. Yeah. Uh, I like the ocean. I'm not into... I wouldn't willingly like go off to the mountains and camp, you, okay. you know. <laughs> and it was terribly hot and dry there. You know, elevation is quite high, and it's kind of a desert-type landscape. Okay. It's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. place. Yeah, a lot of bugs and creatures. Oh, up there. bugs and deer, flies, and you know. Yeah. But in any case, okay. there I was, and uh, uh, the wonderful thing about this training position is you just follow the schedule. And, of course, it's fairly rigorous. You know, it's early in the morning to late at night, and there's a lot going on. But basically, you just follow the schedule. And the uh, culmination of it is at the very end, when those 90 days are over, uh, the head monk presents a koan to the sangha. Mm. So it's like your first public speech. Okay. And, you pre and you're working on this koan all summer long with Maizumi Roshi. And you present the koan, you give it, it's a ritual. It's an elaborate ritual. And then you present your, the koan and then you talk about it. And then you invite everyone in the room. At this point, they become dragons and elephants. <laughs> you invite all the dragons and elephants to challenge you in Dharma combat. Wow. And then, you know, there's no preparation for this. In other words, we don't know what the questions are beforehand. Sure. And, um, you know, people ask their questions, maybe 20, 30 people, and then it's over. And by that time, of course, you don't even know where you are. And, um, and then you have lunch. Do you find as they're asking the questions, are some doing it out of kindness? Are some really challenging uh -huh. you? Do you, do, you get, do you get the feeling that it is combat? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And it's, it was very powerful. That was one of the turning points in my own practice. Hmm. And now, interestingly enough, Roshi Bernie Glassman attended it. Okay. And he hadn't been out for a very long time, but for whatever reason, he spent uh, the last month of the training with us. Hmm. I think Roshi Gempel uh, spent the, the middle month, and then uh, Roshi Glassman came out for the last month. And it was quite wonderful because he helped us with the rehearsals. And, and it was also wonderful to see his interaction with Maizumi Roshi, you know, that kind of tenderness mm -hmm. and trust. And it was, it was very powerful. But um, Maizumi Roshi had invited, I believe, one of his brothers and his, from Japan who has his own temple and a few other Japanese Roshis. So there were a lot of people attending it, and because I was just terrified. I just thought, oh my gosh. And the night before the event, uh, I ran into one of the visiting Roshis, and he said to me, oh, you know, have you memorized all your answers? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that um, 
you know, and the way it's done, it's done very in a, in a ritualized way in Japan, where the questions are standardized and the answers are memorized. Really? So rather than a spontaneous uh, Dharma combat, yeah, yeah. what it is, it's sort of more of a teaching form. Okay. You know, where, where this particular kind of question, this is a particular kind of answer. And so it's done in that way. It's a whole other kind of format. And I realized that he thought that, you know, that we were going to do this. And, of course, I was, like, beside myself. And I went to my Zumi Roshi and I said, Roshi, didn't you explain to them how we do things here, you know? And he just looked at me and just went on with whatever he was doing. But what I remember so, you so must well. have been a little anxious then. Oh, my. A lot anxious to go out there. Gosh. And now you realize you're supposed to have memorized something, and yet you're going to do it in the spontaneity of the present moment. And there we were. We do this whole ritualized entry, which is great because, you know, the ritual uh, creates the environment for this event to occur. Yeah. And it really, as you know, is beyond space and time. So suddenly... The ritual starts with the procession and the bells and the chings and the drum. And you're suddenly, it's carrying you, you, you know? And I remember the moment I stepped into the Zendo, we had a summer storm. Mm. And this incredible roll of thunder just ripple through the environment and I stepped in there and I was in like a different world you know all these people was packed and suddenly it was dark and in a very different environment like a Hollywood movie almost. and at that point I was just carried by the whole thing wow. and I learned to absolutely trust these ritual forms and the power of creating the appropriate ritual spaces you know, yeah. and then it just went. I mean, the whole thing just unfolded, and I was completely present. But it was not little old me, and I felt the Dharma move through me like I was simply a vessel. Mm. You, you know, yeah. And that was such a powerful experience for me that I learned to just trust. You know, that the Dharma is just not about little old me. Although I must attend to to this little part of me. I must attend to all of it. Sure. And, you know, universal self uh, is so. It's so. Yeah. And that when we get out of the way and when we know how to get out of the way, there it is, right? There it is coming through us with this incredible vessels for it. Yes, it has our smell and our flavor and our whatever it is. And suddenly, we're, we're the whole thing. It's, it was a very, very powerful experience. Sounds like it. And did you then stay up there, or did you no. come back to the city? No, I came okay. back to the city. I took a trip to Mexico. Oh, okay. And uh, with a friend. Uh-huh. And uh, that was a whole other adventure. But I needed time to just sort of... Sort of integrate everything? Integrate and, uh, you know, just be ordinary and not be anything. <laughs> and uh, that's very important, as you yeah, know. You know, special. In the work we do, yes. it's like, uh, hey, just let me be me, you know? <laughs> in, that, in that particular way, we need to be. That's right. And, um, and then I went back to work. 
And did they notice anything different about you when you went back to work? <laughs> well, my hair was very short. Yeah. <laughs> It started yeah. to grow back. And there I was, you know, in my corporate dress and the whole thing with this, you know, really short hair, um, which was great. And I remember I felt completely settled. And people would come up to my desk, and they knew I had been off to do some Zen thing. They didn't know exactly what it was, but they knew I had been meditating for three months up in the mountains. And, you know, I worked in a very high-pressure high-stress environment. And people would come up to me and say, well, how is it possible that you could go meditate in the mountains and then come back to this? And it wasn't difficult at all. Because at that point, that environment became sort of my training ground. Mm. And I was very settled in myself. So I just used that environment to kind of really watch what was going on with me. And at the same time, I was so focused, I could just do my work without, you know, without thinking much about it. So that was a powerful, very, very powerful time for me. Wow. Yeah. And I resumed my practice here at ZCLA okay. with my Zumi Roshi. So I was still living here. Okay. Came back to live here uh-huh. and uh, continued my, my practice. And now you were head monk here at that time. No. Oh, once we finished that particular okay. training program, okay. we still have that p- title in a way. Okay. But then it's someone else's turn. To do the 90 days. Oh, I see. Today we do it for a whole year uh, here at ZCLA. We, we've kind of changed it a, li- a okay. little bit. But once you have that position, you've, you've done that. Okay. And so you have a s- certain responsibilities come with that. All righty. Yeah. Now, yeah. when did Maizumi Roshi die? Maizumi Roshi died in 1995. 1995. Mm-hmm. And were you still mm-hmm. living here at that time yes. when he passed away? Yes. And what happened then? That must have been... Uh, a major change, to say the least. Yes. But now the founder has died, yes. and no one's ever able to take the founder's place. No one That's is been my ever experience. able to take the founder's place. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think in some sense, how a place continues and the things that enable it to continue depends a lot on the founder. Did, did he set up... A, a change of command, if you will? Did he assign somebody to take over when he passed away? What Maizumi Roshi had done is he had a will. Okay. And in his will, which was an old will, I might ask, add, yeah. it was done, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Okay. He had named Bernie Glassman mm-hmm. as the second abbot of ZCLA the abbot that would succeed him. So his first successor was given that responsibility. And But this had been done years ago. And Bernie Glassman at that time was in New York. Right? Yes. With his own center. Yes. And he had a bakery. Right. And right. so he was pretty fixed at what he, he, was, he, he was. He was very involved. He was yeah. creating an AIDS hospice and an AIDS residency wow. and housing for the homeless in Yonkers. It was quite an, quite an amazing enterprise and it's flourishing today. Um, so he, as you say, was very, very involved. However, being as close as he was to Maizumi Roshi, uh, it was handed over to him. Of course, it's the last thing he needed to, se- <laughs> to suddenly inherit. Something else to do, right? <laughs> suddenly inherit really the founding temple with all of its history and complexity. Yes. And there's a center in the mountain that's starting to grow. And then there are all these worlds of Maizumi Roshi 
you know, involvement with the Soto School in Japan, mm-hmm. involvement with the Soto groups in this country, all of his successors, those that he were training, they were really close to transmission, but he hadn't transmitted, I'm in that group. All, you know, all, all of it was suddenly on his plate now. Yeah. So, of course, the first thing we had to attend to was Maizumi Roshi's funeral. Yes. Maizumi Roshi died on Mother's Day. It was Mother's Day on this, in this country. Mm-hmm. So we got the call. Had he been sick before that? And no. He, oh, he hadn't? He, he was not ill. He died very suddenly in Japan. And what was the, what was the cause of death? He drowned. He mm-hmm. had been drinking in Japan. No kidding. Yes. Yeah. He had been drinking. He went over extremely exhausted. Uh-huh. And uh, he died five weeks after my mother died. Wow. So he and I and a group of other uh, of his students had been at Green Gulch. And we were doing a one-month retreat with the Soda Show of Japan and the a budding soda group in America. And um, in the middle of that, my mother died. She'd been ill for quite a while. So, you know, someone came to me and said, you know, there's a phone call. I think it's your, it's about your mother. And indeed it was. So I left. And then I returned five weeks later. When I came back, Maizumi Roshi was due for his annual trip to Japan. And he was deeply exhausted. So on the day of his trip, he called me. And I was not in any great shakes myself. <laughs> the day that he called me, he said, uh, Igyoku, I was going to take him to the airport. He said, Igyoku, guess what? And I said, what? And he said, my passport has expired. Oh. And I said, oh, no. I said, well, you know what? I said, um, I'm watching the morning news and there's a bombing in Oklahoma City. Oh. And I just don't think you're going to get this renewed because all the federal offices are going to be closed. And he didn't know what I was talking about. And, you know, I was sort of being a little bratty, quite frankly. And um, since I was his attendant, <laughs> I said, um, I'll try to get it renewed and I will call you if I make it. I said, okay. So he went off. And maybe two hours later, now mind you, the flight's supposed to leave at 11 in the morning. He called me. He said, I got it renewed. And he said, pack my bags. Meet me at the airport. Ran down to his place, threw threw his bags together, which was, you know, he traveled very, very lightly. It was not a big thing. Asked someone here to take me to LAX. And we drove and met him there at the International Terminal. And we were there for maybe a few seconds when he drove up. And so it was like 10.30. And I gave Roshi his things. He was totally exhausted. Gave Roshi all his bags. was already on a cart. And I says, Roshi, go. You've got a half an hour. And, you know, international flights, because this is pre-9-11. You could do that in those days. I said, go. You've, you've got just a few minutes. And I asked the person who was, who had brought me to wait for me. I just had an instinct about this. And I just said, please don't leave. Because I was going to drive his car home. I said, please wait until I'm ready to drive home. <laughs> don't leave me here. And Roshi said, you go first. Like, you get in the car first. And 
by this time, you know, who, the person who had brought me was circling around the airport because he couldn't wait even in those days. And I said, Roshi, Roshi, you've got like now 25 minutes, you know. You need to go. Please go. And he said, you go first. And he'd never been like that. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I'll go first. I go in the car, you know, put on my seatbelt, start the engine. I look at him. He's still standing there. And I know he's not budging till I drive away. And he is standing there next to his bags with his palms together in gusho. Mm. Well, that's it for part two. Part two of my interview with Roshi Egyoku, the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. I hope you found it interesting, and I hope you found it useful. Their website, by the way, the Zen Center of Los Angeles website, is www.zencenter.org. My website, if you'd like to know more about me, is kusla.info. And I'm always happy to get your emails. My address is kusla at urbandharma.org. So until next time, until part three of the interview with Roshi Egyoku, be well, be happy, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>